Whatever mission Paul sent on him, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and were singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David has tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They had credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Paul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. And 19, 1 to 24. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Paul, Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Paul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael left David down through the window and he fled and escaped. When Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel 
at Ramah and told him that Saul, what Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as a leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naioth at Ramah, but the spirit of God came on him and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naioth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, last week we thought about one of the great stories of the Bible, very famous, well-known story, the story of David and Goliath. It's proverbial uh, as a, a description of a small, insignificant person overcoming overwhelming odds. We saw a young, untested teenage shepherd go out on the battlefield and defeat Israel's greatest threat and enemy. Goliath was a man monster and his nation, the Philistines, were hell-bent on destroying the Israelites and it was a marvelous moment in history. All David had was a shepherd's crook, a sling and five little smooth stones that he got from the brook but he knew that the living God was with him and he went out in the confidence and fear of the Lord. Now, how would any good fairy tale conclude at that point? I reckon they normally finish with these words, and they all lived happily ever after. They all lived happily ever after. However, that's not how real life works, is it? That's not how real life works. You know this. Life is complicated, messy, unpredictable, unfair. The good girl doesn't always get the guy. The nice guy doesn't always get promoted. The hard-working student doesn't always get straight A's or a first. Bad stuff happens to good people. And the villain often seems to get away with it. Now, the Bible meets us in this world. In this world. In this realm of injustice and unpredictability. Now, the Bible does assure us that in the end, justice will be done. Good will triumph because God is good all the time. But in the meantime, and the meantime can last for a long time, real life is very messy. And what we find here in the aftermath of the defeat of Goliath is fascinating because it's the story of two people who are dealing with the effects of success. Two people dealing with the effects of success. One is Saul and the other is David. And both of them are reacting to success, but in very, very different ways. And life is not straightforward for either of them. It never is. But I want to suggest that two critical lessons emerge for us out of this narrative. Two principles. One, you can't control what happens to you in life, but you are responsible for how you respond. Let me say it again. You can't control what happens to you in life, but you are responsible for how you respond. And secondly, true greatness does not reside in success, but in what you love. True greatness as a person does not reside in your success, but in what you love. We're going to come back to these two points at the end. 
But I want to see how these principles emerge from the story as these different threads of the narrative weave together in this complex picture. And two big, uh, I'm going to give two broad brush strokes for this sermon that you can hang your hat on. One, Saul's self-destruction. And two, David's faithful endurance. Saul's self-destruction and David's faithful endurance. So firstly, Saul's self-destruction. Have a look there in chapter 18. And there in verse 2, it says that Saul, King Saul took David and kept him in his service on a permanent basis. And this was typical of Saul and indeed of probably every other king in the ancient Near East. We read earlier in the book that whenever a talented leader emerged in the society and came to Saul's attention, he would, he would employ them, gather them round him and use their talents to the full. That's what kings do. The main point here, though, is that David is now on the payroll for Saul, and he is not a free agent. He can't come and go as he pleases. And verse 5 is a summary of what happened next. It says that whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Everyone was pleased about this, David being given position from the troops on the ground to the officers in the officers' mess, because David is a real leader, one who leads from the front with courage and conviction and faith in God. Now, things take a darker turn. Verses 6 to 16 of that chapter give us an honest portrayal of what's happening to Saul. And this is a chilling picture of the power of envy and jealousy. Remember that Saul started out as the most physically impressive man in the nation. It's said that he actually stood head and shoulders taller than his peers. Very impressive looking man, great stature. He was then given the highest position in the nation, the king. So now he has great wealth, power, status, influence. And bear in mind too that his army has just defeated the Philistines, thanks to David. So the people are safe for the first time in years. So you might say, from a human point of view, Saul is at a career high point. But the Bible shows us here that Saul is eaten alive by envy, fear, and insecurity. He is destroyed by the younger man's success. It tears him apart, and it exposes the real Saul underneath so he turns in on himself he becomes obsessive dark and full of vengeful thoughts he's open to harmful spiritual powers and in the end he is consumed by his jealousy now from this point on in the story every step that Saul takes leads him further and further down a dark path to a place that no one would have believed was possible at the start of his career least of all him Let's take up the story in verses 6 and 7. Have a look at your Bible. This is where it starts to go really wrong. Verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, we need to pause here and appreciate the enormous impact that the defeat of Goliath had 
on this nation. Let me give an example from recent history. At the end of April 1945, Adolf Hitler, after a long struggle of the Second World War, committed suicide during the Battle of Berlin. And a week later, Nazi Germany surrendered to the Allied forces. Celebrations erupted throughout the Western world. In Britain, over one million people went out onto the streets and celebrated. Down in London, crowds were massing in Trafalgar Square and all the way up the, the mile to Buckingham Palace. And there on the balcony was the king and the queen, accompanied by the prime minister, William Ch Winston Churchill. And they're on the balcony waving to the cheering crowds. And they called it VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the day they celebrated that surrender on the 8th of May, 1945. Now, something like that is happening here in our text. The Philistines were the single greatest threat to the Israelites' lives. These people had been quaking in terror. They, were, they thought the only options were they're either going to be exterminated or worse, kept alive and put into abject slavery. And now David, this unknown lad from Bethlehem, has single-handedly saved them. So they pour out into the streets with music and singing, and they party with joyful songs. And as they sing, they link Saul and David together in the victory. Now, these lyrics in verse 7 could be misunderstood. They're actually in the normal Hebrew poetry style. And if you read the book of Psalms, you see this all over the place. Hebrew poetry isn't like uh, English poetry. Hebrew poetry relies on parallels, a first sentence and then a parallel one that follows it. Sometimes the parallel repeats the idea in different words. Other times it restates it in, a, in an opposite kind of way. But Hebrew poetry relies on these parallels. Now, when we understand the way that the poetry works, this line in verse 7 is not a put-down on Saul. It actually links him and David together as great champions. It says, they're the ones that have saved us. And the women actually mention Saul first. He gets the priority mention, the king. One scholar has paraphrased this verse. Saul and David have struck down their thousands and tens of thousands. It's not a put down. Everyone's excited. Everyone's delighted. People are blowing up balloons and, you know, letting off flyers and throwing confetti. Life can begin again. Everyone's happy except one person. One person is sulking in the corner. And verse 8 is very telling, isn't it? Have a look at that verse. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get from me but the kingdom? Now, what is going on in Saul's heart here? Just look at this. He hears the song through jealousy and so he's raging with anger inside the line from the song sticks in his head and he goes over and over it until he's burning with anger David's success now in his eyes only serves to make him look small because he views the world through self-centered filters he's now paranoid even though David has innocently served him and not tried to do anything against him he now regards David as the enemy and has to think about how he can get rid of him. What more can he get but the kingdom? You see how he's feeling? 
Now, verse 9 says here that from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He eyed, he was watching him constantly. Some translate it, he kept a jealous eye on David. And for jealousy, it was. Now, the next two chapters show this man, Saul, unraveling psychologically. In verse 10, an evil spirit comes upon him. Now, we don't have much detail on what this means. The Bible tells us that there is a spiritual realm. There are spirits that are good or evil. And ultimately, the Bible assures us that God is in control of them. But we are not passive agents. People open themselves up to evil. In this verse, Saul gets into a kind of spiritual frenzy. It says that he's prophesying. But that word can be translated raving. It's like the prophets of Baal, for those of you who remember the story of Elijah. This is not good prophecy. Saul is in some kind of spiritual frenzy. And there he is in his house, kind of talking away and agitated. And all the time from this point on, he's got a spear in his hand. Now, this spear is his constant companion. And as David is there playing soothing music, because David's a gifted musician, Saul looks at him and it's as if all the jealousy and the envy and the rage just boils up and he gets the spear and he just hurls it at him. And David manages to avoid it. And it happens not once, but twice. Now for David, you might say this is a bad day at the office. Now in spite of this, it says that the person who is most afraid is Saul. He's most afraid. He's full of fear. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul. Verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And the reason that he's afraid is that God is with David and has departed from Saul. And so Saul spirals into more and more darkness. He must get rid of David. And so his efforts become more and more violent. And I'll just quickly summarize what happens over these two chapters. Firstly, there's the incident with the spear. A clear case for health and safety to get involved at the palace. And probably the buildings and maintenance guy as well to come and fix the hole in the wall and replaster it. Now after that, Saul thinks, I'm not going to get him like that. What I'll do is I'll promote him to a significant responsibility in the army where he's in a lot of danger. So he puts David in charge of a thousand men. Now being in charge of a thousand men is a high risk occupation in the ancient world. And verse 17, Saul even says, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. He's fairly confident that David's gonna get killed sooner or later, keep sending him on dangerous missions. But no matter where he sends him, God is with David and David keeps winning. So then Saul tries another tactic. He thinks, I can uh, take him off course with a beautiful woman. So he offers David his daughter's hand in marriage. And by doing this, Saul brings David into the family where he can keep a close eye on him. And the daughter, Michal, loves David, but she seems to be an idol worshipper. You may have noticed uh, as Laura was reading that she has a statue or an idol in the house. And so this might be a sly attempt by Saul to divert David's loyalty to the living God and to sway his heart to follow false idols. But he won't fall. Finally, in chapter 19, Saul blatantly tells his own son, Jonathan, and all of the attendants to kill David, but they don't obey him. What is he going to do? 
In, by the end of the chapter, David is on the run, never to return again. He flees to Samuel, the old prophet, out in Ramah. And in an extraordinary scene, whoever Saul sends to kill David gets intercepted by God. The Holy Spirit himself steps in to protect David, who is the Lord's anointed king. And finally, Saul, like any uh, mafia boss, decides he's going to kill David with his own hands. So he gets in his chariot and goes down to Ramah. But even he gets stopped by the Spirit of God who comes upon him. And in a completely bizarre moment, Saul strips off his clothes and lies naked on the ground, babbling religious nonsense. Now, <laughs> what is going on here? The one who was clothed as king is now reduced to a comedy figure. Remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the New Testament church in Corinth, he quoted Israel's history and he said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's written for us so that we will heed warnings and stand firm in our faith. So we need to read this carefully in light of the whole Bible and find what we're being warned against. What do we learn from Saul's self-destruction? What do we learn from Saul's self-destruction? The answer is the power of jealousy. The power of jealousy. Now, there is a good kind of jealousy. In the Bible, God is sometimes described as a jealous God because he's jealous for something good. And human jealousy can be virtuous. It can be the right thing to feel because it can come from a commitment to a relationship. If a married person finds that their spouse is, is being unfaithful or being tempted to be unfaithful, they are right to be jealous. They should be jealous. Or take a church leader. Paul says to the church, in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Jesus Christ. So Paul is, is deeply concerned and jealous if the church starts following somebody other than Jesus. But you know, often our jealousy is not the good kind because it is driven by envy. Often we're not jealous for something, but we're jealous of someone. We want someone else's life. We see that they have something better than us, or they are better than us. And instead of being happy and pleased for them, we weep over the fact that we don't have it. So envy is wanting aspects of somebody else's life. And it can literally devour you. Book of Proverbs says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. Many years ago, I knew two women who were close friends. They've been friends through university. They were housemates for at least a couple of years. They traveled to the world together. They went to the same church. They seemed to be inseparable. And then one of them got engaged, and the other one was jealous. And so she spoiled her friend's wedding. Deliberately. Spitefully. You see, if you succeed at something, whatever it is, if you enjoy God's favor in your life, 
there's a pretty good chance it will spark this reaction in another person, maybe even someone close. American novelist Gore Vidal famously said, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. You see, when we envy, we don't just want someone else's life, we begrudge them their life. We all recognize there are people out there who are better than you, aren't there? There are people out there who are better than you at something you care about. And if you can see that and recognize that and praise that person and be happy for that person, then you are spiritually healthy. But if you recognize that and see that they're better than you and you burn with bitterness or something inside you just dies, then envy has already taken root in your heart and you're in trouble. Be honest. Do you see this root in your own heart? Whose life do you wish you had? Do you envy someone else's good looks? I wish I, wish I was as pretty as her. Do you envy someone else's body? Do you envy their spouse, their marriage? Do you envy their baby? Do you envy their money? Do you have house envy? Do you envy someone else's job, their prospects, their talents, their gifts, their relationships, their popularity? John Gielgud was one of the finest actors in his generation, but Laurence Olivier was greater. Gielgud wrote in his autobiography and confessed, when Sir Laurence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948 and the critics raved, I wept. I wept. Do you know what that feels like? Now this jealousy, you know, you keep it a secret, don't you? Because you're actually embarrassed about it. You would be ashamed to admit it. But inside, it is eating you up. It's corroding you. It robs you of your joy. It robs God of his glory for the good things he's given you and done for you. It rots the bones. So let me ask, as we think about Saul and his self-destruction, will you confess your envy today and repent of it? Look at what happened to Saul. He had it all and then he self-destructed. Ask yourself, how can my belief about Jesus and what he has done for me in the gospel help to tear envy from my heart? Would you just pause and do that right now? Now the second person in this story is David. And I said to Laura earlier on, I feel like I've got, kind of got two messages in this sermon that are jostling like twins in a womb. But the word of God's dynamic. There's another character in here. We've got to give David his attention. And the thing we learn about David is his faithful endurance. Faithful endurance. And once again, we see that success is not straightforward. The phrase that's repeatedly used in the passage several times is the Lord was with him. God was with him. God blessed him. And we might imagine that if God was with him, then life would work out just fine. But that, it turns out, is not how God works. Now, it would be hard to find a case of workplace harassment that was more extensive than David's, wouldn't it? 
Imagine you're there doing your job tomorrow and your boss just turns up and throws a spear at your head. I think that happens in the company UK Fast, but not in many other companies in Manchester. Now just think about what happens to David and how he responds. Chapter 17, the risks he took going out with no armor on against Goliath. The courage, the faith, conviction in God leading to the great victory. Chapter 18, verse 5, faithfully serving his king and country. Yes, sir, Saul, I'll go wherever you send me. I'll take these thousand men. And like a good soldier, he obeys orders and he fights hard and he endures difficulty and challenge and he wins every time. Chapter 18, verse 10, he also plays music. Now this David, he's like the perfect employee. He's like a cross between Russell Crowe out on the battlefield and Ed Sheeran in your living room. He's playing away melodically, soothing music for Saul, and everybody loves him. The troops and the officers, the servants of the king and the great ones. Jonathan, Saul's son. Michal, Saul's daughter. But in spite of all his dutiful hard work, in spite of his faith, he repeatedly faces aggression unjustly and eventually a direct plot to take his life. He faces the enmity of the king. You know, in chapter 19, even when Jonathan uh, disobeys Saul, he says, I'm not going to kill him. Look, I've got to talk you around here. You can't, you're the king. You can't just go and bump someone off. Come on. What do you think this is? The Godfather? And Saul goes, you're right. I, can't, I don't know what I was thinking. I'll swear on God's name I won't, I won't harm David. So David comes back into the palace He's playing the lyre again, probably a little bit nervous. <laughs> and Saul breaks his word. Now, here's the thing. In all of this, in all of this, it says the Lord was with him. You've got to just get this. This is, a, this is not a sophisticated point, but it's very radical. In all of this, the Lord was with him. When he was winning victories... When people loved him and approved of him, when everything he touched seemed to turn to gold, the Lord was with him. And when he was unjustly treated and harassed and threatened with his life and the most powerful man in his country turned on him, the Lord was with him then too. Now what should we conclude from this? Even if you are obedient to God and full of faith, even if God is really with you, then your life will not necessarily be easy and comfortable, my friend. In fact, it may be harder. Your life may get harder for following Jesus. This is reality. Spiritual reality. It confronts some of our culture's most cherished beliefs. Let me name three of them. One, the belief that the goal of life is my personal flourishing. That's what our culture tells us every day. The goal of your life is your personal flourishing and happiness. It's not true according to the Bible. The goal of life is the glory of God. And the glory of God may come about more through you suffering than through you being happy all the time. Second cherished belief, that you can be whoever you want to be. No, according to the Bible, you'll be who God wants you to be. And that'll be the best thing for you. We're not little gods directing our destiny. We're the children of a sovereign Lord. Third cherished belief, that suffering makes no sense. 
that suffering makes no sense. I've lost count of the number of times I've heard people say in the last 20 years, 30 years, and I've said it myself, I don't get it. Why is God making me or this person suffer like this? I don't get it. Actually, the Bible constantly shows us that its heroes of faith suffer. Every hero of faith suffers. And Romans chapter 5 says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, hope, and character. See, the pattern in the Bible is suffering first, glory later. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself was made perfect through what he suffered. And here's the other thing about suffering. It might convince a skeptical person looking at you that you believe something worth believing. You see, if a Christian's life is always happy, healthy, prosperous, what does a non-Christian look on and think about your faith? Well, of course you believe that because your life is easy. But if a Christian is suffering and enduring difficulty and doing so in a different way to anyone else in the world, then it, something about them is more com compelling and attractive. The skeptical person looks on and thinks, I, I want to know what's sustaining him or her in this trial. I want to know why they're changing through it. They're not becoming bitter. They're not becoming hard-hearted. They're, they're changing. What is it that this person has that makes them suffer like this? It is one of the most powerful arguments for the Christian faith that we suffer well. Saul destroyed himself. David faithfully endured. Back to those two critical lessons that we started off with. Two principles. One, you can't control what happens to you, but you are responsible for how you respond. You just can't control your circumstances. Life happens to you. Yeah, you can try and control it, but things come in and out all the time. You can't control it, but you are responsible for how you respond to life. Will you take that responsibility to Jesus? Secondly, true greatness doesn't reside in your success, but in what you love. You see, Saul was successful, but what he really loved was himself. What he was really pursuing was his own flourishing, and what he wanted more than anything else was his own brand to succeed. And when David threatened that, everything fell apart. David, on the other hand, loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with his strength. The only person that the Bible describes as being a man after God's own heart, even though he sinned terribly, he was far from perfect, he loved God. He was a lover of God. And therefore, he was able to endure faithfully in the face of hardship. Everybody in these two chapters loves David. And so that comes back to us. Where, where do we find ourselves in the story? And I want to suggest that once again, we are the people and we need to love David, not just the David in the Bible, but his greatest son, the Lord Jesus. As we think about our lives, about whatever you're having to deal with at the moment, let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered far greater things for us. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 has these words. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are you tempted to grow weary and lose heart? Have you realized that there's a root of bitterness and envy and jealousy in you? Then consider Jesus. Come back to him now as we sing our final song and ask him to change you. Let's pray.